I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Charlotte Brooks, art curator at the RHS Lindley Library here in Vincent Square in London, the finest horticultural library in the world. Later in this podcast, we'll be visiting my colleagues to hear about the exhibitions that are coming up this year, plus frogs, toads and newts. As we approach their crucial breeding time, we'll get expert tips on how to help the next generation of amphibians by identifying and protecting spawn in garden ponds. It's so important, especially as they can help your plants by eating the slugs and snails. But first, in Islington in London, the King Henry's Walk Garden had a very special visitor last week. Some keen community gardeners were paid a visit by Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cambridge. She was there to take inspiration for the RHS Back to Nature Garden at this year's Chelsea Flower Show. It was announced that she'll be co-designing it alongside landscape architects Andre Davis and Adam White. We headed down to the King Henry's Walk Garden to meet some of the people who created this space and to discuss the benefits of small green spaces in an urban environment. I'm Nicola Freshwater. I'm a trustee of the Friends of King Henry's Walk Garden. Um, I was a founder member and set up the garden 11 years ago. This was a derelict site. It had been um, used for industrial warehouses for, I think, most of the 20th century. And then in the 1980s, Islington Council created a park here. But because it's a very tucked away and isolated site, it had lots of vandalism and antisocial behaviour, and they had to close it. So a few years later, they began this consultation process with the local community to find out what people wanted. They said they would like a community garden. I got involved in 2005 when the consultation process had just about finished and they were ready to set up a volunteer committee, which I joined. And we spent the next two years fundraising and planning the garden. We had to raise over £200,000 to create it. And it opened at the end of 2007 and has been going from strength to strength ever since. This morning we 
we're absolutely thrilled to have the Duchess of Cambridge come and visit the garden. We've had all sorts of activities going on. The Garden Classroom, which is a local charity who run educational sessions with local schools, and they do a lot of work here throughout the year. They were working with the children from St Jude and St Paul's School, which is just down the road, and we've been making pizza, the children have been making pizza and fat balls for the birds and planting up containers, building bird boxes and the Duchess was able to help with some of those activities and she's met some of the plot holders and it's been absolutely great, really exciting. Hi, I'm Marnie Rose, I'm director and founder of The Garden Classroom. We started at King Henry's Walk Garden in 2008 and for the last 10 years we've been delivering uh, an increasing number of learning and actual environments experiences across the whole of Islington and in Kent. I'm 51 now but when I was at primary school we went to Suntrap Field Study Centre in Epping Forest and it was a totally moving experience for me. I can tell you what I had in my sandwiches, I can tell you what my bag was like and, and I was probably 10 at the time. I used to go to the allotment with my nan, which is just where the Olympic Park is now, until it disappeared, and I used to play in Wanstead Flats as well. I then lived in Borneo for a while with my husband, and we lived in a house next to the jungle. We were part of the Nature Society, and when we came back to London to live and started the garden, we just realised what a fantastic, wonderful experience it was to spend time in places like this. Getting outside, uh, into nature regularly is one of the most important things you can do in your life and we're on a mission to encourage schools to take children outdoors for at least half a day a week. In Islington it has the lowest amount of open access green space to anywhere else in England so it's got a really terrible USP but we're doing our utmost to kind of counteract that and disadvantaged children in particular are losing out because connection to nature seems to be go to people who are more privileged and so therefore we have to target children who are disadvantaged i.e those that don't normally go out connecting to nature and facilitate opportunities for them it's a great equaliser nature so it brings people together across all types of communities all types of religions faiths cultures and societies it brings everyone together on one level platform really Hi, I'm Phil Wales and I'm the Chair of the Trustees and also the Management Committees of King Henry's Walk Garden, where we are at the moment. I was got involved with the garden about nine years ago. Initially, as a plot holder, we heard about it and applied and I was very fortunate to get a plot. As soon as I got a plot, I became more and more involved with everything else that was going on. The volunteer work days, which are once a month, where we work on big projects like building the pizza oven, building a, the shed in the woodland for the bee maintenance, um, moving the containers to make a better layout, as well as just general maintenance, weeding, composting. And also really great to meet the other people doing the same thing. The sense of community is fantastic. We've made some really good friends who are very dedicated to the place as well. We've just become more and more drawn into it the more you do. I'm an architect and I worked in healthcare um, latterly 
and I've become very interested and aware of how the environment, both internal but especially externally, um, affects one's mental well-being and the benefits, whether you're healthy or you need help, um, it can really support those feelings. It's an ongoing place to release yourself from all other thoughts. You can just sit and be, or you can do something physical, but both are terribly good for you. Community gardeners at the King Henry's Walk Garden in London. You can find links to photos and information about the garden and the royal visit on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'll be bringing you regular reports about the gardens and designers exhibiting at the Chelsea Flower Show. So stay tuned over the coming months. My job here at the Lindley Library in London is looking after the Society's botanical art collections. One of the things I love doing is working with contemporary, practising botanical artists. Sharing our collections with them can help inspire and inform their own work. We recently had an artist from Japan come to visit us to see how other artists have tackled challenges of form, pattern and colour in their work. As well as helping to support these artists, we also programme a range of exhibitions and events at the library. Here's Fiona Davison, Head of Libraries and Exhibitions, to talk some more about the upcoming events for 2019. This year we've got a really packed programme of exhibitions at the Lindley Library. We've got a small display space in the upper reading room, but it's a really nice opportunity to showcase some of the treasures that we can't share in the rest of the RHS gardens because we don't have any secure and environmentally controlled spaces, but here in the library we do have, so we can get out some really nice things for people to see. So we kick off the year with Handle With Care and that's where we share with everybody all of the challenges we face in terms of caring for these collections. Our collections are lovely, but they are made of just about some of the hardest materials to look after. So they're very delicate paper and very often watercolour, materials that are really light sensitive, very sensitive to changes in humidity and temperature. So we've got this vast collection and we're doing our very best to make sure that future generations of gardeners can enjoy it. So this exhibition is explaining some of the things we've got to grapple with and what we're doing It also is an opportunity for us to share previous successes we've had in terms of raising money for conservation projects and exciting conservation we've done and also sharing the challenges of the next big conservation project we want to take on. So Handle With Care is up from the 7th of January through to the 15th of February. And then following on from that is a display called Hidden Horticulturists and that will run from the 4th of March to the 6th of May. And what that's about is every year hundreds of thousands of people visit Wisley, but very few of them realise that as well as a beautiful garden, they're actually going into the National School of Horticulture and they're surrounded by students working and learning. And it's this little display is going to open that picture up. Even fewer people know that 
This is part of a 200-year-old story of the RHS training young gardeners. So this is looking back at the very first school of horticulture that the RHS ran in its first garden at Chiswick and then comparing that with the life of students today at Wisley. Following where those first students got to, one of them was Joseph Paxton, who went on to worldwide fame as, you know, inventor of the Crystal Palace and was the nation's most famous Victorian gardener. Um, and then following that story through to today, I'm wondering whether the, there is a Joseph or maybe a Josephine Paxton in Wisley today. So Hidden Horticulturists is on from the 4th of March to the 6th of May. And then our summer exhibition is worth a thousand words, um, and that's to coincide with the RHS London Botanical Art Show. So worth a thousand words is showcasing some of our contemporary botanical art. Every year we try and buy a new piece of art for the collection by a contemporary artist that's won a gold medal. So it's the best of the best we're aiming to, to add to the collection. And this little display, which is on from the 20th of May to the 26th of July, is an opportunity to look back at some recent acquisitions. So you'll see some really stunning botanical artwork by people who are really cutting edge in their field. The Worth a Thousand Words, as I say, is on to overlap with the London Botanical Art Show. So it's a great opportunity if you're coming to the show, pop next door into the library and see a broader range of art as well. And we'll be doing special behind-the-scenes curator tours as well. We haven't set the dates for those yet, so if you go to the RHS website, you'll find out nearer the time. And then that's followed. We close for some of the two weeks where we do stock checking and general behind-the-scenes housework. And we'll reopen with Dig for Victory. So... 2019 is the 80th anniversary of the outbreak of the Second World War. And to mark that, what we're doing is looking at the story of the Dig for Victory campaign. Not many people know that as well as the iconic propaganda that was put out by the Ministry of Information, there was an awful lot of really very detailed and practical gardening advice to enable people to grow their own food to overcome the blockades. And that advice came from the RHS and the RHS was very heavily involved with the victory work and so we're trying to tell that story and we've put an appeal out. We'd like anybody who's got photographs of their own dig for victory plot, lots of people dug up their rose beds and their lawns to grow vegetables or got an allotment, if anyone's got any photographs of that we would love to hear from them. So we'll be looking at what the RHS did, it issued pamphlets. It also sent an army of experts around the country to village halls and scout huts and town halls up and down the land to explain how to dig for victory. And they did that with a display board, which were in wooden crates, which went up and down the railway system. And miraculously, one of those sets has survived and we've got it. And so we'll be displaying that. And also, even more miraculous, some glass lantern slides have survived from the war. And these were used to give lectures to people on how to dig for victories, like a step-by-step how to turn your allotment into a productive food patch. So if you've got photographs, there's a link uh, to the email address on the podcast page of the RHS website. And Dig for Victory runs from the uh, 12th of August right the way through to the 15th of November. And we're also planning to produce a version of that display to go into every RHS garden. So wherever you are in the country, it'd be easy to see. You can also read details of activities and events to enjoy this winter in our four RHS gardens. From snowdrop weekends to planting design workshops, 
and a glasshouse Lego safari. There's something for everyone. Now, wildlife. Or, to be more accurate, pond life. We regularly get members asking us questions about spawn and whether it's from a newt or a frog. And, can you collect and introduce it to garden ponds? So, we asked an RHS wildlife specialist for some tips. My name's Helen Bostock and I am one of the gardening advisors at the RHS Gardens at Wisley. So my particular interest is in wildlife gardening and it's just got to be the best time of year to start to poke around and see what's active in your pond. If you're lucky enough to have a pond, and of course now is also a good time of year to create a pond, so good way to keep warm. But if you have already got a pond, don't think that everything's all fast asleep in there underneath the ice because it doesn't take very much for wildlife to start to wake up. And in fact, one of the first things to wake up in your garden are going to be your frogs. And they get very active and a little bit amorous even as early as late January or February. So all it might take is a bit of a mart spell and they're very quick to start coming out out of the water or the hiding places sort of under leaf litter that they've been sheltering in during the winter and seeking out particularly ponds that have nice shallow areas. So if you've got a pond that only has really steep sides and you've been wondering why maybe you don't see a lot of frogs about then it's going to be really good either make yourself a new pond which is nice and shallow or see if you can build up maybe like a beach effect with pebbles and stones on one side of your pond. That will certainly create an ideal love nest for your local frog population and then frogs they start to get in quite a frenzy some accounts have been heard of ponds almost boiling or bubbling with the activities of excited amorous male and female frogs at the start of the season so have a little look out for any activity you might not spot them but you might wake up one morning and discover wow, there's an absolute mass of this jelly-like substance in your pond. So get out there, have a little look, see what's been going on. It's really tempting, and I know those of us that grew up in an era where we used to go with our jam jars with a bit of string tied on and down to the local wildlife pond and go pond dipping and get ourselves a nice bunch of frog spawn. But please, if I can implore you not to do that, just because... There are a lot of diseases, particularly things that are going around, like viruses that frogs can get, that you could inadvertently transfer. So leave the frogs where they are, leave the spawn where it is, and just enjoy it. If it freezes a little bit, don't worry. A really hard frost might be enough to kill spawn. But don't worry, nature can be brutal sometimes. So, how can you tell what kind of frog spawn you've got? So what if you discover you've got something that looks like spawn in your pond, but it doesn't look quite right, it's not in these big, jelly, bubbly masses? Well, chances are, what you've got there is not frog spawn, but toad spawn. It looks like long strings, almost like necklaces of spawn. So it's not in a big jelly mass, it's in these long lines that you'll find that the toads wrap around plant stems. I've got a flag iris in my pond and 
every year I get all these lovely rings of, of toadspawn. It usually happens a little bit later in the spring than frog spawn, so you might not see it just yet, but do keep an eye out for that. And then later still, you might be lucky, you have to look really closely for this, for newt spawn. Now, this doesn't happen in sort of big clumps like frogs and toads. Newts are very careful. They lay single eggs on individual leaves below the waterline or at the water's edge in your pond. So if you're really lucky, you might spot these. They're really tiny, like the size of a sort of peppercorn. But look out for those if you're doing any work in the pond later in the year. This year, we're theming our whole Wild About Gardens campaign, which we run in partnership with the Wildlife Trust around ponds. So that's just a little preview of what's to come. That'll get launched in the spring. So do look out for our materials to help you get started and excited. And in the meantime, fingers crossed, you get some frog spawn this year. Helen Bostock from the RHS Gardening Advice Team. Finally, have you got a few minutes to become a citizen scientist and help a researcher studying a potential threat to UK gardens? As the climate alters, the potential risk of ornamental plant species escaping over the garden fence and becoming invasive could be on the increase. No one wants another Japanese knotweed on their hands. A researcher working with the RHS to study the scale of this problem, is asking for gardeners to help. By filling out a short online survey, you can report sightings of escaped non-native plants. We phoned him at his research base at the University of Reading to find out more. I'm Thomas Jones. I'm a PhD student at the University of Reading, collaborating with the RHS, and I'm essentially trying to identify which ornamental plants might become invasive in the future. The survey is there for gardeners essentially to report ornamental plants that they're finding either to be taking over their garden or showing invasive characteristics within their garden. That's on the premise that gardeners can be the first to observe plants having invasive characteristics, which could allow them to be invasive in a wider environment if they were to escape the garden. So, for example, an invasive plant might have very good dispersal abilities. In the garden, you might find that You've got a weed. It pops up everywhere as a seedling, thuggish little plant they can't get rid of. It's important to point out that a plant might be invasive in the garden or a thug or a weed that might not necessarily be invasive in the wider environment. By that, I mean have a detrimental ecological impact. But it's a good way of starting the process of identifying plants, and then I can investigate those further. If we take ladies' mantle, for example, Alcamilla mollis, most of us will have seen this either in our own gardens or growing in slightly disturbed habitats, naturalizing in urban areas. It's a light green herbaceous plant, particularly beautiful in the morning when there are droplets of water balancing on the leaf. Very delicate yellow flowers, very small. But that's one example. On the extreme other end are some of the huge bamboos. These can be slightly problematic two and a half metres tall. So an invasive plant is by no means fits into a particular shape, pattern, colour. Once these plants, such as rhododendron pontigum or Japanese knotweed, once they're in the environment, once they're invasive, and you've got huge stands of them covering hillsides, 
you've got the manpower, the machinery, the chemicals required to try and eradicate the plant, leaving the landscape destroyed for a few years and a long process of returning to its natural state. The main hope, I guess, is the fact that the research is working both ways. Gardeners are giving me information now via the survey on which plants they think might be invasive in their garden, but they'll also be feeding back to the gardeners the results from the survey and what that means for their gardening practice. We'll be using the species distribution modelling. That'll give me a measure of which plants will find future climate suitable. That's by no means the only measure of invasive potential, but it's a good point to start in terms of identifying which ones are going to be the next invaders. Horticulture is the main pathway of non-native plants into the UK. So gardeners, we have an important role to play. That role gives us the opportunity to contribute to this field of research and be proactive and identify these plants before they become big problems. So if you head to the RHS Science website, and there's a live link there for the survey. The deadline's the end of January. I'll be doing initial results analysis in early February, and then I'll send feedback the results via different media platforms with the RHS heading into spring. You can find links to the Ornamental Plant Survey on our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'd love to hear about your plant sightings. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, from me, Charlotte Brooks, and the podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.